So at the back of our Old Testament is, is a little collection of 12 books called the Minor Prophets. Minor simply because they're shorter than the five major prophets. These books are, are fairly often overlooked, especially in preaching. And the prophet Joel is one of these little books, one that's never been preached at this church. But now we're going to work through it in a series I have created, creatively titled Joel. Joel presents a unique difficulty for us in that most of the prophetic books contain a heading at the beginning so that we know when and sort of where the prophet ministered. The book of Zephaniah, for example, opened the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. And so in that instance, we therefore know that Zephaniah worked when Josiah was king in Judah, which first helps us to know that these things in that book took place, sort of technically speaking, between 640 and 609 BC. And second, probably more importantly, really, is that it indicates we can situate Zephaniah within the events recounted in 2 Kings 22 to 23. So, so that's important, not only to help us see the historical nature of our biblical books that God delivered into real times and real places to real people, but it also helps us put the various pieces of our Bible together as we try to fit these didactic books, these teaching books within the framework of our narrative books. But here's the, here's the thing. If you look at Joel 1, 1, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. So, so in God's providence, we, we don't have a way to make a definitive decision about when Joel ministered. Now, now from various references within the book, we can gather that he lived and worked in the southern kingdom, Judah, in Jerusalem. But that, that doesn't actually still help us to know when. Uh, we wish we could know when this book was written because it would help us pen down the reference points of things that happen inside the book to which he refers. So, for example, uh, Joel 1 verse 2 to 2.27 is largely about a, a significant locust attack, as we'll consider in a few moments. Now, the issue is whether or not these are real, literal locusts, or whether Joel spoke figuratively about enemy armies attacking by using the metaphor of locusts. So if we knew that Joel ministered in a time when we have records or something of, of, a, of a major locust attack in Israel, then we would be able to say, well, we think that these are literal locusts that destroyed the land. But we don't have that. So where, where does that leave us? Now, here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put forth a few things to help us get, get a grip on this book before we dive into the text of it. I, I think, for whatever that's worth, uh, that we can make a guess that Joel wrote this book around 
or after 722 BC for a few reasons. I'll, I'll make that more significant than just a, a random number here in just a second. So, so the rest of the minor prophets are ordered chronologically, roughly. So, so somebody, when they were arranging these 12 books, thought that Joel was an early book and they put it here towards the beginning of this collection. Further, I, I think that Joel described a foreign army attacking the land by using this, these locusts metaphorically. And, and this seems likely because as we'll think about, uh, during the later parts of the sermon, Deuteronomy 28, 38, and 42 detailed covenant curses upon Israel discussing the attack of foreign enemies and and also combines that with language about locusts. And so the Bible makes important use of locusts as a metaphor for a destructive enemy, and Joel is a case of that. The Assyrian Empire sacked the northern kingdom of Israel, so Samaria, the capital city, in 722 BC. That's, that's one of the reasons why that number is important. And I think that the event upon which Joel reflected was that. Which places this book somewhere, if we're thinking biblically, the more important thing, somewhere between 2 Kings 17 and 24. So, so having somewhere within those chapters. Now, I think he reflected on that attack because it does seem like there is still some warning going on in the way that, that he spoke. So he both seemed to tell about an event that happened, not, not necessarily predicting something that's future and seemed to warn about a coming attack. So Joel used the fall of the northern kingdom to warn his own people in Jerusalem to turn away from their sin if they wanted to avoid the same fate. And that, that was maybe an overly long discussion about when this book was written, but I hope that last point draws it together. That if we, if we date this to somewhere near or at least after 722 in that range of second kings, we should read this book as taking the fall of Samaria as a warning against Jerusalem to come back to covenant faithfulness. And I think that that encapsulates much of this book's concern. In in chapter 1, Joel called the people to grieve over this metaphorical locust attack. And the main point, as we work through this text today, is that coming judgment should make us run to Christ. Coming judgment should make us run to Christ. And we're going to think about this in three points. The series of laments, the significance of the laments, and the salvation of the laments. So first, the series of the laments. Okay, so if you if you keep your Bibles open, I, I hope you were anyway, but let me encourage you to do that and, and you... And we're trying to get a grip on what's going on here. Joel 1 is composed of five summons. 
which call various kinds of people to lament over their sin, repent of their wickedness, or take action to reverse the sin of the people. So in this point, we look at this series of laments or admonitions to lament and and what was going on here. So, So let me highlight for you quickly the order of these summons. So I'm trying to help give you a picture of the structure of what's going on here. So I'm going to point to the first phrases in the verses that that mark out each one of these five laments. So verse 2 says, Hear this, you elders, which shows us that this this first section is addressed to, to leaders in Judah. So, so elders in the Old Testament it is more about civil leaders, whereas we use elders in the church to mean a different thing. But here it's talking about civil leaders. So so next, if you jump to verse 5, it says, Awake you drunkards, and weep and wail all you drinkers of wine. Joel targeted here specifically drunks, but I, I think that we can see from the following verse that the real issue is general abuse of God's blessings, of, of which drunkenness is one instance that he highlights here. Then verse 8 says, lament like a virgin. So the third, third summons, lament like a virgin, but there's, there's no group noted here. And so what we take this to mean or to indicate is that this was a general address to the population, to all who might hear. And then in verse 11, Joel said, be ashamed. O tillers of soil, wail, O vine dressers, which brings to account, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> farmers in Israel. Lastly, then, for our final summons, verse 13 reads, Put on sackcloth and lament, O priest, wail, O ministers of the altar. And so this final section spoke to the clergy so to speak, the religious leaders in Israel, which tells us that not even those whose job was to direct the people to God were exempt of the need to lament over what their sins would bring upon the covenant people. <coughs> Excuse me. So, let's, let's pull that together. These, these verses indicate various groups that Joel called to lament and what they tell us is that this is a fairly comprehensive summons to lament, if we think about these. So it addressed leaders, the overtly unrighteous, the general population, <laughs> the working class, and the ministers. <coughs> Excuse me. So in other words, I mean, this calamity affects everyone, and they all need to grieve over it. And that is the point of these cyclic sections, if we put it that way. But, okay, now I hope that gives you a picture of sort of the structure and 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 helps you know, you know, sort of holistically what's going on. But we still need to think about the content of these laments. So, verse 4 is our starting point here. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, 
the destroying locust has eaten. <coughs> so, uh, as, as interesting as it may be for some people, and many have tried at length to parse out the specific species of, of locusts here. That's not really my thing, but apparently some people who wrote on this passage really wanted to know about bugs. Uh, the point, I think, is clear enough. Okay, so the point is that by the time these waves of locusts have passed through, everything is destroyed. That's, that's the payoff. Whatever was left by the first group, definitely the last group would devour any lingering remnants. Now, further we can jump to verses 6 and 7. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, it has, and it has fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. So Joel said, essentially outright here, I, I don't know why it's really much of a debate, that this locust language was metaphorical for an, for an attacking foreign army. For a nation has come up against my land. <laughs> and we see the effects of this attack later on in our passage. Verse 10. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up, the oil languishes. Verse 12, the vine dries up, the fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. This destruction is even so bad that even sacrifices in the temple cease due to a lack of resources. Verse 13, put on sackcloth and lament, O priest, wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. So, so there's no food. Verse 16, and even the animals suffer from this destruction. Verse 18. The series of laments calls Judah to mourn over the attack that has just happened or is coming upon them because the Lord has sent destruction. And that brings us to our second point. The significance of the laments. Okay, so having seen the fact that Joel summoned all classes of Israel to weep over the destruction of an invading army, we, we need to think about the significance, the relevance of that destruction. This, this act of judgment upon the land, so to, so to tell you where we're going, this act of judgment upon the land points towards a judgment coming upon the whole earth. Some intra-biblical considerations help us to think about that point. So, so buckle up, we're about to walk through a healthy amount of Scripture, trying to, trying to piece together sort of some, some 
holistic Bible concepts. So, Revelation 9, verses 1 to 4, say, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So, the Bible here depicts the final judgment as a great swarm of locusts that destroys those who are not God's people. The best way to understand this text from Revelation is in light of the rest of Scripture. And locusts represent a force of thorough destruction. Uh, as as even we have sang, yeah, say, sung, sang in our psalms this morning, they're a force of thorough destruction. And that's what it means here in the context of the last... You can always tell when I depart from my notes. So where do we get this locust imagery, though? So, so we know that, that God, I, I think most of us know, that God made a covenant with Israel to be his people. Individuals, so, so let's get a, re, a point really specifically up front, clear. Individuals within Israel were saved by grace through faith alone, as Romans 4 and Hebrews 11 make entirely clear. So salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, for individuals in Israel. But the nation as a whole had other conditions attached to their corporate life if they were to maintain their blessings in the land. So, so there's a difference between what happens to individuals by grace alone and what happens to the whole nation according to their obedience. So I'm trying to make sense of lots of big picture Bible things here. Most, most sermon illustrations break down. And I know that this one would too if you push it too far. So don't. But this point is kind of like when parents make a deal with their kids about keeping the house clean. So, as long as kids keep the house clean, the kids get to eat dessert every night. Now, that deal has nothing to do with whether or not parents love these kids. That's a separate issue. (laughs) But it is unshakable. We hope that love is unshakable with earthly parents. But if the children neglect their duties, they will lose some earthly blessings. So, the love, acceptance, unconditional, but uh, earthly blessings, conditional. The Mosaic Covenant, this covenant with the nation of Israel, worked a bit like that. But even as we can see from our text today with obviously higher stakes. 
as long as individuals had faith in the promised Savior who was coming, they were saved. So by faith. And their personal obedience contributed nothing to that. But they had to be, as a nation, obedient to the Mosaic laws if they were to maintain residence in the land. So if national Israel was unfaithful, God would kick them out, which is precisely why they were sent into exile. And what were some of the curses in this instance? So if Israel did disobey, what were some of the curses that came upon Israel? Well, as I've already mentioned, Deuteronomy 28 catalogs covenant curses for disobedience. So, so verse 25 in Deuteronomy 28 says, The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. So then verse 38 describes this same curse principle as, You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little. For the locust shall consume it. So, locusts were always linked to the curse of exile. I mean, even in the first explanation God gave us of the coming exile, foreign armies and locusts were joined together as a covenant curse. And as we try to draw this back to us, we have to remember that all of us are cursed in Adam. God made a covenant with him that if he obeyed, he and all humanity with him, because of him, would be blessed forever. Now, some of you might be skeptical about how I've just linked this Curse, these Old Testament curses upon Israel to us as fallen in Adam. I, I know that some of you might be thinking, no, Harrison, this is just one of those things that pertain to the Old Testament and doesn't really shake out today. Uh, but turn over to Joel 2 3 briefly. Fire devours before them. And behind them a flame burns. And here we go. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them. But behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes. So Joel himself, the point here, that Joel himself links these curses falling upon national Israel to sort of the same fate that fell upon Adam in Eden. And so there is, even within this book, these parallels running between the initial creation context and Israel in the way that curses fall. So, to draw these biblical points together, let's make some more sense of this. This judgment upon Israel points forward to the ultimate judgment upon the whole earth. And that indicates that this judgment that happened in a small part of the world 
was only a small foreshadow of the global cataclysmic conquest that will occur when God comes back to storm the earth with his armies of angels and purge it of those who rebel against him. So, for you who know you have broken God's law, Joel points you to the devastation that awaits us if we do not have a way to escape God's judgment. The the significance of the laments is that they point us to see that doom awaits us if we have rebelled against God. And that brings us to our third and final point, the salvation of the laments. So, So where does it leave us that we see in this text primarily a description of the judgment that is coming upon all sinners? Where does that leave us if we are to have hope to escape that? Joel issued the repeated summons to lament and grieve over sins in Israel because judgment had arrived. But we know, do we not, that simply feeling sorrow for our sins in itself is not enough. We know that God is just and that He will repay transgressions against His law which are assaults on his infinitely valuable character with infinitely terrible recompense forever. Repenting itself does not alleviate the need for justice any more than it would when a murderer says he's sorry. So where does that leave us? Well, we find the foundation of our answer in verses 19 to 20. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. So Joel cried to the Lord for help. He saw that judgment lingered in the air of the entire land. And the only hope was for God to act for him instead of against him. So Galatians 4, 1 to 5 says, I mean that the heir, heir, uh, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
we can sum that up as the Mosaic Covenant was a guardian meant to teach God's people that we as sinners are enslaved under the law that God built into creation because we are sinners who cannot keep it. And in that instance, the the law only curses us. When the fullness of time came, when the Mosaic Covenant had sufficiently made the point that the law cannot save but only curse us, God sent forth His Son to redeem those who were under the curse of the law. And that is where each of us must turn if we wish to escape God's wrath. If we look around us and we, and we see how society is crumbling into deeper and deeper godlessness, we have to remember that society is only godless as people do godless things. It's not abstract. It's not an arbitrary force. People, godless people, make society godless. The pure, destructive... Each of us contribute to that godlessness. That's the thing. With every one of our sinful impulses and deeds. So we, we have to look for Christ. To look to Christ. Who came to free us from the curse of the law. We, we easily forget, I think, that it's not just those out there doing godless things. But we are full participants in that. And so Joel brings new depth to what Christ did for you on the cross. Soldiers of Assyria and Babylon stormed and plundered Israel and Judah. And the pure destructive force of those armies foreshadows in a small way the coming judgment. But God poured out that judgment upon Christ at the cross. The full weight of hell was emptied upon Jesus as He hung upon that tree. And if we would take shelter behind that cross, then judgment would pass us by. Christ has done it all to pave the road to eternal life. And if we would trust in Him now, we can be assured that God and His armies will come not to ransack but to rescue us. So let's pray. Father God, we are aware of the weight and the solemnity of texts like this that are about judgment and what they mean for us who are sinners. And we fear, sometimes for ourselves, 
most predominantly for our friends, family, and neighbors who we know don't trust in the Lord Jesus. And we ask you here and now, as, as we think about this judgment passage, that you would store up in our hearts a deeper treasuring of the work of Christ on the cross, that He died to redeem us from these coming curses, represented in a small way by those curses that came upon the land of Israel. Help us to to love our Savior more deeply because we see more fully what He has rescued us from. And we pray that You would move in the hearts of those who don't trust in Jesus here this morning that they would take shelter at the cross. That they would embrace Christ, trust in Him, and be freed from the curse of the law. And we pray that each one of us would find deep joy in that message that He has done it all to rescue us from Your coming wrath. And, who, and He has made us citizens of Your kingdom. We pray these things in His precious name. Amen.